Hello, and welcome to Building Better, a podcast about the human spaces and urban landscapes that we build worldwide in order to ask the question, how can we build better? My name is Christoph Lindner, and as well as being your host for this podcast, I'm also the dean here at the Bartlett, UCL's global faculty of the built environment. In each episode, I'll be sitting down with other members of this community to explore new ideas on some of the world's most important challenges. And we'll be bringing together multidisciplinary perspectives and radical thinking from our world-leading experts. In this month's episode, I want to talk about slowness. So what does slowness mean in the context of a city or a space? And this is something I've been particularly interested in during the pandemic, which seems to have radically decelerated or even stopped many aspects of urban life while simultaneously accelerating others. To help me think about slowness and whether or not it's something we want to aspire to, I've brought together two researchers from the Bartlett. Today, I'm joined by Pedro Gill, an architect and senior teaching fellow at the Bartlett School of Architecture. Alongside founding and directing his own architecture firm, Studio Gill Limited, Pedro is on the Royal Institute of British Architects expert advisory group, Architects for Change, and he has been selected as a member of the Mayor of London's Diversity in the Public Realm Commission. I'm also joined by Dr. Elsa Arcauta, Associate Professor in the Bartlett Center for Advanced Spatial Analysis, or CASA, as we like to call it. Elsa is a theoretical physicist who studies urban systems from the perspective of complexity science and looks at understanding emergent patterns at different scales from neighborhoods to cities to regions and countries. She is currently a co-investigator of an EPSRC grant looking at rebalancing the economy in the UK and of a Newton grant looking at assessing the socio-hydrological resilience in Mexico City. So, Elsa, I'd love to know a little bit more about whether you think London, the city where we live at the moment, is a fast or a slow city. So my first reaction to your question is actually, I mean, is it fast with respect to what? Is it fast with respect to demographics and migration that is going on in cities with respect to its infrastructure, its land uses, housing, demolition, construction, the type of... uh, economic activities that take place, planning processes. You know, I can think about a million things with respect to to this question, but also with respect to ideas, conventions, and traditions. So as you were saying, I I am a theoretical physicist. So mainly my my input into this uh, type of matters is trying to see how from the local interactions, you get patterns that uh, emerge and you want to understand exactly what is it that drives these patterns and how we can then change those drivers in order to get the system into a different state. So when we think about fast or slow, of course, the first reaction is, yes, London is a very fast city. Everybody walks fast. And, and I look into the city, for example, and I see lots of demolition going on. But in any case, what we have going on is actually different layers intervening. So we have layers that are very fast and we have other layers that are very slow. So how these layers are coupled is the most important important aspect of this. 
Yeah, thank you, Elsa. So speed is relative, and also the question of fast or slow for whom? Who's experiencing that speed? Under what conditions and why? Pedro, do you have any initial thoughts on the question of whether London is fast, slow, or some combination thereof? From my lived experience perspective, it feels like a fast city. But then when I travel around the world, for example, other cities in Asia, Southeast Asia, Hong Kong, whether the speed of things is relative, as you say, Christoph. I, I, trend, I tend to try to reevaluate my relationship with London and, and its pace. The occupation of people is one thing. I think the mass gathering of people, our relationship to each other, our relationship to, to buildings and spaces, I think that moves quickly. The, the, the other thing about speed and, and pace in London that I, that I tend to observe, is, and again, it's when I leave it, when I leave it for a period and I come back, the city reinvents itself quite quickly on a superficial level. For example, advertising boards, screens they move really really quickly even tendencies of shops in certain areas from month to month london london can change so in that respect it's quite a quick city the slowness of it i think um, there are moments of pauses and it's one it's one of the great park cities of the world so uh, in london we enjoy many parks and that goes back to the british tradition of the garden and and the estate and the green estate that's a really interesting counterpoint to the, to the speed of London or to the pace of London, the parks. So I, I would say for me, my, in, in terms of my experience of it, it, generally it's a fast city, maybe not the fastest on, on planet Earth, but it also has these moments for pause and reflection, these built environment moments for pause and reflection. So while you were speaking, Pedro, it reminded me of an experience of riding an escalator coming out of the tube the other day. And as we all know, when you ride the escalator, you have all those advertising posters for West End plays and hair products and teeth whitening and whatever else. And I was struck by how in this particular station, those posters had not changed since the first lockdown a year ago. So in some parts of the city, the advertising has been refreshed, it's been updated, but there are certain spaces where it's almost caught in time and you have adverts for shows that are that never even launched or opened for exhibitions that have long since closed. And it made me think about how during the pandemic, we experienced one of these pauses, one of these interruptions that, that, that you described, Pedro, but it happened in such an unplanned, involuntary way. And it created both places and experience of slowness that we never anticipated, but at the same time also unleashed new accelerations and change that wasn't anticipated. So even though many shops have been closed, especially local shops, have been closed all around London, during that time, as they've gone out of business, new shops have moved in, have prepared to reopen, but are not yet apparent. And so I feel like we're in this moment where we're surrounded all the time by, by, by things that are moving fast and things that are also stuck in a state of slowness. And it's not very apparent which is which. I'm wondering if you have had any similar experiences of this paradox or this tension between acceleration and deceleration. Yes, yes. And even before the pandemic, we have the shock of 2008, for example, and we also have the shock of the, the Olympics taking place in, in 2012. 
So looking at the system, how it responds to shocks, because of course, when we're talking about dynamics, basically what we're talking is about change. And what is it that provokes this change? So of course, we want the city to be evolving and to be adapting, but sometimes we have these shocks that we cannot foresee, right? Like the crisis. And uh, on the one hand, you have Connery Wharf, which was the banking center, readapting and trying to create new firms for fintech and and, and quickly really uh, turning around things. And then uh, on the other, you have... Shoreditch, for example, all this area in which a lot of investment took place in order to, to have the new Silicon Valley emerging there. And in the end, there was this coupling, as, as I was saying at the beginning, of the rents going down and, and enterprises being able to, to have uh, their, their firms there. Then at the same time, well, you have all these changes in the city taking place and all these new hierarchical structure of industries and the Olympic Park being, you know, like something that displays a lot of artists on the one hand in order to put retail and things. You have places like Temple that has stand still <laughs> that is right in the middle of the city so you would say this is one place that will be very much affected by everything that is going on but because of its tradition and this path dependency of why it is there it stands still and nothing happens to it and it continues its own unique path that, it, that it's so slow and this is the context that I was uh, talking about at the beginning right so you have innovation or shocks to a system that you have really rapid changes but then at the same time you have these regulations or these traditions that interfere and try to on the one hand protect the system from risk but then on the other you can also see that maybe could stifle as well um, innovation so I, I see this all the time you know like how you can then catch up and allow the new things that emerge for, for example from uh, situations like uh, like this in order to really to flourish instead of just, you know, <laughs> being I, I, I appreciate that that optimism, Elsa, and I and I do think I, I share a good amount of it. At the same time though, I'm also wondering how the effect of speed, whether it's slow or fast, affects people in their lives, in their homes, in their communities, and in their jobs. And in particular, I'm wondering how the effect of speed is uneven in cities and can either produce or create inequalities. And in the back of my mind are some of the articles that probably many of us have been reading in recent weeks about delivery drivers in lots of large cities who are just working endlessly, tirelessly with quite precarious contracts and conditions and zipping and zapping and zooming all over the city, making our urban lives function while those who can work at home or those who don't have jobs have to kind of go through an experience of endured slowness or forced slowness. And so it just strikes me that as certain businesses, essential services have remained open and people have had to continue to work, often in very intense situations, others are having radically different experiences. And so I'm wondering what is shaping the uneven experience of slowness? Yes, I think for me, this is very critical and it's very worrying because, of course, as a Latin American woman, I am here because here I'm able to fulfill my potential. I'm able to work with people that are more open-minded and be able to be a physicist, a woman, you know, in science, which is uh, it's not that clear coming from a, from a Latin American country. And with COVID, what has happened is that you see this gap. So it's not only inequality with respect to income, it's also inequality with respect to gender. So you see women that have had to work from home also have had to take care of children, why the women and not the men 
we go back to this same issue of traditional views, because even though you have from the one point governance that has allowed women to be accepted and to have the same jobs as men, in the mind of people and in society, this still has to permeate and has to evolve. And the only way to do that is through interactions, it is through diversity, it is through contact with other cultures and so forth. And so COVID has exactly shot up this aspect of uh, these interactions. Well, not only we have COVID, we also have Brexit. <laughs> taking place which is which is terrible right so we have we have different now shocks to the system that are very very negative and we need to work our way around to go back where we were so i think now with brexit and with covid we're two steps behind and we really need to work hard in order to be where we were before so we're in a a moment of shocks and resets and i wonder pedro if we look at the public realm and more broadly, public space in cities. And as we begin to reemerge from lockdowns here in London and other parts of the world are, are taking tentative steps, or some parts of the world are able to take some tentative steps in that direction. I'm wondering, how do we use these shocks, these disruptions, these resets to create temporalities, mobilities, socialities that are positive and nurturing and beneficial to society. Do you have thoughts on how we can use this moment of reset to do good in our public spaces? I think it's also worth just reaffirming that social justice and climate justice are intrinsically linked, they're intertwined. And and if we think of the pandemic as a consequence of our abuse of the planet and its resource and begin to frame it as part of the climate justice conversation and how, unfortunately, those that have suffered the most through the consequences of the pandemic are uh, ethnic minorities, are the disenfranchised, are the underrepresented groups. That is not a coincidence. And those kinds of groups are the ones that tend to be most disproportionately affected as well by climate change. So I I think that's a really important conversation to be had about public life, public space, public realm, what, what that entails. So, so to go to go back to your point about resetting, about shocks, there are two large reflections that I've had that the pandemic has brought about. And the first one is how we are one planet. We are one planet. And how, in an interesting way, the pandemic has equalized all of our experiences, whether you live in Latin America, whether you live in Southeast Asia, whether you live in Africa, whether you live in Europe. It's been an equalizer and it's been a reminder that we're one planet and that we are one ecosystem and consequences from one region have a global, can have a global effect. I think that, that in my lifetime has never occurred. So that's the first thing about we're one planet, that stark realization and that, that talks back to climate justice. The next reflection that I've had in, in, in the time of COVID is the, the idea of 15-minute city. And in a way, it's, it's a counterpoint to we're one planet, we're, we're, one, we're one global community, that we are reframing or reevaluating what our idea of local is and how we can, we can if we really wanted to, have all of our needs met from within our very own personal spheres. For example, food growing, uh, greening cities, the, the lack of commute, our, our social side, our uh, commercial side, all of those things could potentially be serviced within 15 minutes or, or less. 
in our own little, in our little bubbles. And I, I find it fascinating that, that we're talking about spaces in London, in, in the centre of London, and I've just realised I've not left my 15-minute bubble in, in about 15 months' time. I, I live way out east London in Redbridge, and I've just realised the spaces that Elsa and Christoph are talking about, I haven't been to those in a year and a half. I've been in my 15-minute city bubble and functioning quite relatively well. So it, it can be done, but, but I also need to understand and check my privilege, my, my male privilege, my light skin privilege. Even, even though I'm a black mixed race individual, I do, I do enjoy light skin privilege. And also my privilege within society as an architect. So it's easy for me to say 15 minute city. And the challenge would be what, what does 15 minute city look like in Angola? In, in, a, in an impoverished region, or what does 15 minute city look like in, in Colombia in an impoverished region? So, some very profound thoughts, and thank you for sharing those. And it makes me wonder when is slowness a privilege? When is slowness an injustice? The notion of the 15 minute city has been around for a long time. So, 20, 30 years ago, there are certain cities like Portland in the US who very deliberately redeveloped, uh, revitalized downtown areas to create. 15-minute living zones. And this idea is back now during the pandemic. And you can imagine a version of the 15-minute city that is about reconnecting with the local. It's about pause. It's about deceleration. It's about the bonds of community and things like that. But at the same time, 15 minutes is not a lot of time. So it's a very short amount of time. So for a 15-minute city to work, it means you have to be able to dip and dart to shops, to the corner, to your friends. And you use the word bubble, Pedro, which of course is a word that has acquired all kinds of new meaning after the last year. And we all now live in various kinds of social and, and spatial bubbles. But coming out to the pandemic, you know, is, is, is a bubble a healthy thing? Do we want to live in these micro communities with these micro temporalities and these micro mobilities? Will we, we be losing something by not having the sprawling commute across London, the dipping in and out of different areas, being in a financial district, being in a commercial district, being in a residential district? So I'm wondering if you have thoughts on that. It's probably a combination of the two and, and what the living situations and living conditions of the pandemic have shown us is that there are alternative ways. I actually think that the, the, the idea of slowness is quite underrated in Britain and in London, I would say. As, as a, having grown up in London, I, I believe the, the idea of slowness is actually underrated. There's an attitude that you've got to move fast, like a shark, you've got to keep moving, you've got to keep swimming, because that's the only way to be productive, or that's the, the best way to be productive. When, when in fact, we, we do, as people, need time for time and space to reflect. So I, I, I do think it will be a combination of a redefinition of what local means, but local from an environmentally sustainable point of view and a socially sustainable point of view, with the option of, 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 uh, of visiting other regions of your city. It's that mode of alternative, I think. That's, that's where I think it becomes interesting. I definitely love the idea of being able to have everything at hand. So, so as I was saying, I come from, uh, from Mexico City. So London for me is actually small <laughs> compared to this other city in which I used to travel 
from one place to the other, north, south. Uh, I was looking yesterday at uh, Google Maps and it will be 20 kilometers <laughs> between one place and the other inside the city. So for me, coming to London, it's like, oh my God, you know, like things are closer <laughs> now than before. But thinking about this 15-minute uh, city, it's very much, as Christoph was saying, this idealization for the privilege, right? So if we think about places, you know, in developing countries, the way cities have grown and, and the way cities need to adapt is really how you couple this system of transport with the economic opportunities so that people don't need to be traveling for hours and hours in order to get to their jobs. It's not that they decide, oh, I want to go and have an art class on the other side of the cities. I need to, to live here because I cannot for living close to where I work. So I think one needs to reflect about this issue of how this evolution and the fast pace of, uh, of cities, it's really, you know, positive feedback for the wealthy and the, and the privileged individuals. So how we can then couple the system in order not to be leaving people behind and in order to really be giving this opportunity so that maybe I will have to sacrifice a bit more, but this is in order to be a more inclusive city. So I very much think that it is important to have mixed spaces and to have spaces of interactions between diverse uh, groups. And it's the only way forward, you know, not only with respect to creativity, artistic or technological, but also with respect to this change in views and, and ways people look at the evolution of, of society. Infrastructural investment is, is crucial. And, and infrastructural investment, not in the way that we've been doing conventionally, that we have to find new ways of creating this infrastructure that can facilitate this redefinition of what local is, was going to be. For example, with the GLA, the GLA are very invested at the moment in converting empty retail spaces into community uses. And there's a lot of conversations and research and action and projects that are, that are beginning to permeate through, throughout London into how we can reanimate or revitalize or reuse high streets and city centers for more than just buying and selling. Because they do have a really important social fabric and it's trying to make the most of those. And I could see that kind of a model being quite successful in Latin America. So I just wanted to, to, to make that point as well about the, the importance of infrastructural investment, but not the, not the traditional conventional sense. That also needs some thought leadership in what that looks like. You are listening to Building Better, the Bartlett podcast, a podcast brought to you by the Bartlett Faculty of the Built Environment. If there is a question about life and research at the Bartlett you would like us to answer, email us at bartlett.coms at ucl.ac.uk or tweet at Bartlett UCL. Now, a lot of what you've been talking about, Pedro and Elsa, reminds me of the family of slow movements that have been around now for quite a few decades. So I'm thinking of the slow cities movement, the slow food movement. Those are maybe two that are best known. And over the last several years, we've seen a proliferation of those movements to expand into slow fashion, slow media, slow family, and now even slow science and slow universities, slow scholarship. And in those movements a lot of the interest is in pushing back against the accelerating forces of contemporary life and saying that we do better work or have better lives, better communities if we simply decelerate, if we slow 
down. Now, caught up in some of the examples that you've shared are tensions between privilege and injustice. And I wonder whether looking to the future, we want to continue advocating for these kinds of slow movements or whether we need to recalibrate our thinking about slowness so that it is more nuanced to enable it to address some of the exclusions or inequalities that are built into the privilege condition of slowness. So what I mean, because that's quite abstract, let me give you an example. I remember a few years ago going in to a restaurant in Berkeley, California that advertised itself as slow fast food. And I went in specifically to find out what is slow fast food and what does it taste like? And what it turns out this restaurant was doing is it was presenting slow food in the form of organic burgers, organic milkshakes, very expensive, you know, sourced locally, all of the right ingredients and labels and practices that you want with slow cuisine, but available to you in a fast food format. So not a lot of space to sit down, you get your food, you eat it quickly and you get out of there. And it made me think that what they were basically offering was vicarious slowness. You get to continue to be fast and superficial in your life while someone else does the slow, hard work of being slow for you. And it seemed to me that that little moment actually described a much larger pattern at work around the world where many of the spaces and moments where we can be slow come at the cost of others doing that work, that labor, or even that kind of creative activity for us. It's very funny that you bring up this question of uh, fast food, uh, uh, Christoph, because I ask my son this question. So I have a 12-year-old boy, and I kind of share my academic life as well <laughs> with him. And I ask him, what do you think about London being fast or slow? And he looked at me and he said, with respect to what? And I said, well, just answer the question. <laughs> and then he said, well, London is a fast city. It's a fast city because you can see buildings going up and down. But it's a fast city that doesn't think about how to get fit in the proper way. So it is like somebody that goes running, 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 but then at the same time is eating hamburgers all the time. So basically, <laughs> it's a city that is not thinking about uh, uh, being green and sustainable. So this is my 12-year-old <laughs> son giving me this, this advice. And I'm thinking, well, exactly, this is, this, is, this is what it means. It means let us pause to strategically design what is it that we're going to, to, to accelerate so that it can, be, it can be adaptable you know, for the future and sustainable. And so in Latin America, of course, this is something that never happens. You know, most of the time it's like in many different places, you have these terms in which people need to show that they have produced something. And so many times it's just housing for the sake of it, even though it's not useful. You know, sometimes it's just in the middle of nowhere. Uh, instead of building really something, a transport system or something that will really benefit most of the people and not only the people that are already benefited by, by the transport system. So we did some analysis and you could see how, for example, in a city in Brazil, you put this BRT system, you tick the boxes, right? So, so you know, during my term, I've done great, you know, I created this BRT system. And then you look closely, who are the people that are benefiting from this system? Well, it is the people that were already, you know, in the high income bracket. And so slowing down in this sense is really about thinking of how what you're doing is going to impact the rest of the of the people. That's the way I think about uh, slowing down. Sl slowing down to create something that will be sustainable. So slowing down to think about the future, but it doesn't mean that then you will take everything in a slow pace. You slow down to accelerate later. 
in previous podcasts, one of the things that really emerged when we were talking about space is that what's wrapped up in the design and experience of space are questions of power. Space is about power. And I'm wondering in this conversation, if a similar theme is emerging, that speed is also about power. Who has it, who doesn't have it, how it's experienced, or whether it's something that's done to you. Slowness is a privilege at the moment because it, in the way that we're talking about it, it's actually the concepts that we're discussing are emerging from, originating from artistic or theoretical backgrounds. They're not really practical lived experience backgrounds. So they're, they're artistic or creative endeavors or, or perhaps philosophical endeavors. Whereas really what, what we're, what we're trying to get to is practical solutions that help the planet be a better place. And, and that issue of practicality, I think it, if we are going to be, if slowness is going to be sustainable and sustainable in all its guises, socially sustainable, economically sustainable, environmentally sustainable, then it must be able to adapt itself to many different environments across planet Earth and many different cultures and many socioeconomic backgrounds. It is partly about infrastructural investment. It's also uh, a literacy about the planet. I don't, I don't think, me personally, even as an architect, I've got a long way to go about my, my literacy, about the, the, the things I do, the way I practice, the, 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 the way I, I operate that could be done better in terms of environmental sustainability. I think there's an element of uh, climate literacy there that needs to, there's a, that work needs to happen. And then really thinking about what's the social benefit of slowness for disenfranchised and often underrepresented communities. And maybe slowness is problematic. Maybe that word, because it originates from philosophical and artistic endeavors, that maybe it needs to be framed in a different way. And I, and I do think that in, in Latin America, slowness, or whatever that ends up being, has got tremendous potential because one, one thing that we are in Latin America is hugely entrepreneurial. Everyone is entrepreneurial, partly because of the state system, because the, the safety nets that we enjoy as privileges in the UK aren't always there in terms of healthcare, in terms of social housing. There's, you have to rely on yourself and your own wits to get yourself out of holes. So entrepreneurialism is something that, that I think could be linked into what, what slowness could be about in, in other territories. Yeah, I think, Pedro, you're touching on to something very, very important, which is this idea of being slow. It's actually having the privilege to be able to be slow, right? So, so as you were saying, you know, in Latin America, you cannot slow down because the government is not going to help you. So you're not going to have any help that will enable you to then enjoy life and, and, and things Things like that, right? So this idea of being able, for example, to source and being more conscious about climate change or this type of things is uh, is something that relates to be, being able to afford and have a system that works like that, right? So, for example, if you think about things related to the way people use the materials to, to, to do things. In Mexico, you would have traditionally, for example, 
this fruit <laughs> that would sell for example that would serve as a pipe to get things out of uh, of uh, of the cactus in order to extract the liquid but of course then you have the coca-cola bottles the plastic ones that you have everywhere because it turns out that soda drinks are very cheap compared to to having clean water and so people will be buying soda beverages instead of buying a water because it's cheaper and it's tastier and so then you will see these plastic bottles replacing these other traditional uh, way of doing things that come from mat- natural uh, resources and why is that because it's cheaper and so and so people end up doing things in a way that will most benefit you know like their economies and try to get them ahead of where of where they are because there is no proper governance behind in order to help um, no proper social system in order to help the citizens so yes yeah, so so in a way being fast can give you power fast in terms of being creative, innovative, and so forth. So you can be fast in order to produce more if you if you equate these two. But then on the other hand, being slow is actually something that is from the privileged uh, uh, one. So it's a, it's a bit of a tension and contradiction. So we've covered a lot of ground, and it's been fascinating to hear your thoughts moving us through questions of privilege, slowness, vicarious slowness, involuntary slowness, speed as a form of power. But what's really uh, inspired me listening, Elsa and Pedro, to your comments and your insights are the ways in which you both are advocating for a more equitable sustainable, inclusive future. And I'm just wondering if you look at the built environment, particularly from a global transnational perspective, what do you, what is one thing that you think we need to do better? How can we build better over the long term? Right. So this is a very difficult question because, of course, the one thing <laughs> one would need to change so many, so many things. But I think the first thing is is uh, to think about building so that it's not about optimization, but it's about adaptation. So one, what something that that has a, a role now can adapt quickly into another one in order to have a more sustainable uh, future. So that would be my one thing. It's not about optimization, but about uh, adaptation towards inclusivity and sustainability. And Pedro? I would say we we need to really be at the core of our thinking, always be moving towards people, places and planet. The the three three Ps, people, places and planet. We don't talk enough about people. I think We, we tend to talk about buildings, spaces, realms, but we, we tend to forget about people. And in, in the way that I try to work, we're always trying to design for people, working for people, people as collaborators, people as genuine co-authors. So I think people and communities need to be at the heart of, of policy, but also um, design authorship. You have been listening to Building Better, the Bartlett podcast. This episode was presented by myself, Christoph Lindner, produced by UCL with support from the Bartlett communications team and edited by Karis Bradley. It featured music from Blue Dot Sessions with additional sounds recorded by Paul Baverster. I was joined today by Pedro Gill and Dr. Elsa Arcalte. If you would like to hear more of these podcasts, subscribe wherever you download your podcasts or visit ucl.ac.uk slash Bartlett slash Building Better. Or you can follow us at Bartlett UCL. This podcast is brought to you by the Bartlett, UCL's global faculty of the built environment, 
and UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights, and expertise through events, digital content, and activities that are open to everyone. We'll see you next month.